Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I recently had the great pleasure, and it really was a pleasure, of talking with Abhin Adav Aseo Asari about her brand new book, Bitter Roots, The Search for Healing Plants in Africa. This came out in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. It's hot off the presses. This is a story that's a really wonderful account of the transformation of plants into pharmaceuticals as this has emerged in three spaces in what's broadly defined as Africa. So Ghana, South Africa, and Madagascar. And in each of the chapters, Aseo Asari takes a plant as a case study for looking at the various actors involved in these transformations, the spaces of these transformations, the way that these transformations can help us understand the emergence of a system of of credit, of priority, of patenting that acts and has acted as a form of empowerment for different communities within this broad history of science and medicine. So it's a really interesting local set of case studies about the history of plants, of drugs, of pharmaceuticals. But at the same time, and this is one of the really wonderful things about the book, Aseo Asari is using these local case studies to challenge the very idea of a local study. So one of the things that comes out of the book is that she's asking us to critically assess what it means to talk about and to make claims about and assign priority based on local knowledge, local traditional practices, indigenous knowledge. And the problem is this. Simultaneously, as a field, as a community of historians of science and medicine and practitioners of the various fields associated with these um, topics, with with this set of ideas, We are, on the one hand, giving increasing priority to the importance of movements, of circulation, of a a kind of poly-sided and poly-vocal history of science and medicine, and that's great. But how can we reconcile that with a set of stories that's continually about locating science in place, right? So if knowledge is constantly on the move, how can we situate it in any one place over its history, right? So it's a really interesting tension. It's a really, it's an extraordinarily well articulated story of this tension. And because the book does such a great job at raising these very sophisticated, very critical issues, it speaks well beyond the field of histories of African science and medicine, history of local science and medicine, or really history of science and medicine in the first place. So it's worth reading if you're interested in Africa, if you're interested in plants, in pharmaceuticals, in drugs, in a set of really good stories, or even just if you are interested in what it might mean, what it can mean, and what we should be thinking about in talking about local knowledge practices and assigning priority to them. So it's a great book. I hope you have a chance to read it. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening.
I'm here today to talk with Abana Dove Aseo Asari about her new book, Bitter Roots, The Search for Healing Plants in Africa. Welcome to New Books in Science, Tech, and Society, Abana, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I really, really loved. So congratulations on the awesome book, and thanks for being here today. Thank you, Carla. It's an honor. I'm really excited about our conversation. So, Avina, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the history of science and medicine in modern Africa? Sure. So, I grew up with my feet in two worlds. One was rural Pennsylvania, where my dad was a professor of chemistry at Penn State University. Um, he's from Ghana. My mom's American, and she's from the U.S., we spent a good amount of time both in Pennsylvania and back in Ghana, where my father often consulted uh, for mining industry. And being in two places in my childhood exposed me to a great deal of health disparity in terms of my American family, the kinds of medical concerns that they had versus the medical concerns of my Ghanaian side and the types of uh, medical interventions that were available to them. So from a really early age, I was quite aware that families living in Ghana were much less healthy. Maternal mortality was a big factor in structuring uh, my father's side, but he lost both his mother and his sister in childbirth versus my mom's family in the U.S. They confronted cancer, they confronted diabetes, and there were a lot more um, health uh, interventions that were possible for people living in the U.S. One thing that was also common to growing up in rural Pennsylvania and spending time in Ghana was actually traditional medicine um, in rural Pennsylvania. I got interested in herbal medicine, um, spending time in the forest and fields near where I grew up, and tasting plants to the chagrin of my parents. <laughs> it's always something that has fascinated me, growing herbs, um, selling herbal concoctions at arts festivals. Um, and so it kind of was a natural pathway for me to be interested in plants and how they might they might heal and, and cure individuals. Um, when I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, history of science was a growing field. It was a really exciting time to be in the department. The social construction of medicine and knowledge was a whole new way of thinking about the world for me, that medicine was not necessarily a fixed construct. It was something that people shaped. It was something that changed over time. I think my background and then also being at Harvard at just the right time helped me get excited about this field. So the book itself um, that we're talking about tells the story of six different plants and five substantive um, body chapters, all of which were sourced in African countries, that competing groups of plant specialists and plant specialists both within um, and beyond Africa have tried to transform into pharmaceuticals since the 1880s. And so the book focuses on key moments of exchange of knowledge and materials in the case of each of these plants. Rosy periwinkle, Asiatic pennywort, grains of paradise, strophanthus, cryptolepis, forgive my pronunciation <laughs> here and beyond, hudia? Yes. Um, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've talked a little bit about how you came to work on and be interested in plants specifically within the broader field that you work on. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to this particular way into the history of plants 
um, and and in modern African history. So why bioprospecting and biopiracy and why these plants in particular? Yeah, sure. So the first interview for this book dates to 1997 when I was an undergraduate doing thesis research in Ghana. I was staying with family who are midwives, actually. Um, and at that time, I was really trying to understand maternal mortality and my own family's experience with um, losing mothers in childbirth and historically what had been done to counteract this and what were some of the political uh, policy interventions in place in the late 1990s. One thing that really fascinated me talking to women who were traditional birth attendants and um, nurse midwives were the plants that they were using uh, to combat um, maternal bleeding, um, health, perinatal care before and after labor, uh, the ways they were making soups infused with particular plants to help heal women. So they started noticing that I was actually asking a lot more questions about the plants than necessarily um, their their framework for questions that somebody who's interested in midwifery should ask. So things about like the whole birth process and how babies were born. I was less interested in that at that point and much more interested in the plants. So they told me I should go talk to this elderly gentleman named Oku Ampafo, who was seen as the father of plant medicine in Ghana. And that was a really important interview for me. Um, he was actually on his, his deathbed, as it turned out. He died several months later. He was paralyzed, and um, he was blind. But he was kind enough to allow me to speak with him about how he, as a physician, got interested in herbal medicine in the 1940s. This is a Ghanaian who uh, had grown up in colonial Gold Coast, goes to Scotland to become a physician, comes back during World War II and sets up his own practice, healing people as best he can using a combination of herbal remedies and imported pharmaceuticals. He starts doing research on how he might transform some of the more viable herbal remedies into drugs. So my way into bioprospecting in Africa really came through my conversation with Oku Ampofo and then a number of his colleagues and other scientists in Ghana over the years. These are individuals who are very much considering themselves to be African, black Africans, who are scientifically minded, but are also trying to make sense of the herbal knowledge that is indigenous to where they live, traditional medicine, traditional remedies, um, and find ways to interface this herbal knowledge with pharmaceutical chemistry. So, you know, Ironically, for a lot of people, they think of bioprospecting, they think of scientists from, um, say, North America or Europe going into perhaps South America, the Amazon often comes to mind, looking for new cures, talking to shamans. The way I came into it was really from a Ghanaian perspective. It was from talking to um, women who were healers and also talking to this particular Ghanaian who became a legendary figure in terms of um, his advocacy for plant medicine. Great. Now, and we'll talk about him a little bit also, um, a little bit more later on when we get to that chapter of the book. 
So this did um, begin, if I'm not mistaken, at least in part as a dissertation project. Is that right? Yes, yes. So, Abhinav, can you talk a little bit about that transition in the transformation from dissertation to book? Were there any major changes um, either in the way the project look and, looked and or in the way you were conceptualizing what, um, what you were arguing and how you wanted to argue it? Yeah, sure. So the dissertation was wholly about Ghana. I spent uh, a couple of years doing research in Ghana, um, a Fulbright Fellowship, and then another year, a few year, years later, interviewing Ghanaian scientists, Ghanaian healers, and looking at the archival record in Ghana and also in the United Kingdom to make sense of the bridging between the colonial period and the post-colonial period. And what I really focused on at that point was toxicity and the ways in which the colonial um, medical establishment was fixated on the idea that traditional herbal remedies in African contexts were poisonous and dangerous. If they were in the wrong hands, they would cause harm. And that this sense of toxicity and danger around traditional medicine continued in the post-colonial period, even when the medical authority is replaced with people like Oku Ampofo and and other um, Ghanaian physicians and scientists. So they're again, concerned with toxicity in a sense that they need to bring traditional remedies into laboratories, into hospitals, into the university setting, and get it away from the herbalists and the healers um, who are mixing in um, extraneous items to their herbal concoctions that might make them poisonous and toxic. What I found when I graduated and then was trying to turn this into the book were three things. The first was that at that time, there was not a huge demand for a book just on Ghana. That's definitely changed. Now people are saying, oh, we would love to publish a book on on Ghanaian medicine. Um, The field has shifted in a, a decade, basically. So talking to publishers, they really wanted something besides cases on Ghana. They wanted to have some perspective in other parts of Africa, basically for a wider market. We're talking 2008, you know, economic crash, university presses trying to figure out how to remain relevant. So the people I was talking to at that point were saying, please give us a bit more perspective on the rest of Africa. So the second factor was that I'd grown up in Ghana. I had a lot of ties to Ghana. I needed to go somewhere to get perspective on what I'd learned in the dissertation. And I was more than excited to try and go look at case studies in South Africa and Madagascar um, and broaden my own perspective on what I'd seen in Okuampafo's story and the stories of some of his um, colleagues. Now, the third thing that happened is that when I actually traveled all the way around the world to Madagascar or South Africa is that this idea of toxicity and poison and herbal medicines being identified and classified as as dangerous in the wrong hands, it didn't carry that well as a, as a framing concept in other parts of Africa. And so I had to really rethink what was it that got me excited about herbal medicine in African countries. It had never been this issue of toxicity. That was kind of this framework I tacked onto the dissertation. Um, I needed to come up with a new way to bring together case material from different parts of Africa and really make an intervention that I thought would be helpful for scientists living in Ghana, for example, scientists in Madagascar, scientists in South Africa, and researchers, historians in um, North America and Europe 
who were not always in conversation with each other. So I wanted to bring into conversation these case studies I was seeing emerging in different parts of Africa. Um, it was it was kind of a long process. It definitely was not obvious when I graduated that my dissertation was going to be about Ghana. Um, my book was not going to be about Ghana. And at some point, I had a uh, meeting with a group of scholars who were reading the book in progress, and they told me, stop thinking of this as a Ghana book. Your book is no longer about Ghana. You're doing something more. Um, and that was, that was pivotal in terms of my rethinking of what was shaping the book. Now, the book, as we get into the book itself, and you might hear some some ambient buzzing in the background as the construction workers outside are marking the fact that we are now getting into the body of the book. I'm sure that's what's going on outside. They're very thoughtful. Um, So as we get into the book, there are several key issues that you bring up in the introduction that all raise major questions with broader implications. So before we get to the case studies that I'll ask you to talk about, I'm just going to take a few minutes and just lay out, or a couple minutes and just lay out some of the major questions that you raise in the introduction that we're going to see recurring in the different case studies throughout um, the rest of the book. So the first issue perhaps is time. As you mentioned in the book, there are important legal implications bound up with the question of who was first in drug discovery in the cases that we're going to look at. So there are important implications here for how to assign credit for drug discoveries. So this brings us to perhaps the first key question you lay out, who was first? And we're going to look at issues of credit and priority throughout the book. So if the first issue is time, the second one is space. African traditional medicine has moved and changed over time. Um, And you mentioned this, um, and we talk about this, or we will talk about this at some length, I'm sure, later on because this comes up as a really crucial issue through the book. So a second key question is, was traditional medicine in Africa local? So we have who was first, was traditional medicine local, which brings us to the third issue of identity. How did plants become pharmaceutical? Sort of how can we understand the remedies in this book in terms of a biographical account? So if we have time, space, identity, then the fourth major issue I'll bring up is ownership. And the key question here that you raise for us and that you use these case studies to allow us to think more critically about who benefits and who has benefited when plants become pharmaceutical drugs, given the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, there are multiple claims to priority, to locality, and to appropriation. So this is the frame for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book that really overlies and that infuses and that emerges from the different case studies that you um, gift us with in the successive chapters of the book. So let's get into it. The first chapter looks closely at two um, medicinal plants in the context of Madagascar. So the two main plants are periwinkle and pennywort. By the late 20th century, both rosy pennywinkle and Indian pennywort were leading medicinal plant exports for Madagascar. They were both widely used in plant folk remedies, and they both inspired research into their healing properties by scientists. So let's start out by talking briefly about rosy periwinkle. Um, Why was rosy periwinkle was a weed, um, and this becomes important. So why was rosy periwinkle so important in this context, and what happens in terms of its transformation um, to a pharmaceutical drug? Yeah, sure. So Rosie Periwinkle, if anyone has heard of bioprospecting, if they've heard about the transformation of plants into pharmaceuticals, they've probably heard of Rosie Periwinkle. And of course, publishers said, why don't you do something on that and put that at the beginning of the book? Um, so I did, and we put it on the cover too. Uh, 
And it is a great contrast for me for thinking about, as I said, what was happening in Ghana. So what we have here is the transformation of a small flowering plant into a leukemia drug. It doesn't get much better than that. A cure for cancer that's right in people's backyards, basically. It happens through Eli Lilly um, in the 1960s. They are actually in competition with a couple other different research groups, but they end up with the bulk of the uh, the drug patents surrounding the, the alkaloids that come from the periwinkle. And what becomes so critical by the 1980s and early 1990s is the sense that Eli Lilly found a cure for cancer from a plant which was stolen from healers in some tropical environment. This is the perspective of of policymakers in the United States and also a group of, of ecologists and activists somewhat based in South America. Um, why would Eli Lilly be allowed to get all of this money and profit whereas the people who knew about this plant and use this plant traditionally are not getting any money. And this becomes an issue in terms of biodiversity um, conservation and maintaining all of the possible new cures for cancer that could be in the rainforest. Um, Periwinkle gets held up as, as the classic case of biopiracy, of theft of natural resources, and we need to come up with a new economic model that will allow scientists to tap into the um, plants of the rainforest, but also give people living in these biologically rich environments an incentive to not slash and burn and cut down rainforests. What actually is the case, and I wasn't the first to point this out, but I do um, have conversations with people in Madagascar and actually going to Madagascar to see where periwinkle um, grows and its its natural habitat was instructive for me. Um, What we think is that periwinkle originated in Madagascar. Um, It has the largest kind of diversity within the species on the island nation of Madagascar. And that Madagascar periwinkle is then going to be distributed around the world. So, the idea, number one, that, that Madagascar periwinkle is a rainforest plant that needed to be protected was not the case. It's a weed that grows along the shores of the, the beach. It grows in fields. It's a um, perennial kind of – it's a weed, basically. You can't get rid of it. Um, and it's it's not necessarily a, a, an endangered species that fit into this model of saving the rainforest. Mm-hmm. Now, how does this, I mean, you mentioned this in dialogue with another case in this chapter, the case of Indian pennywort, and you mentioned them together um, and use them both to raise the issue for us of priority. In both of these cases, as you show in this chapter, priority for discovering um, the plants, the pharmaceutical properties of the plants, for transforming the plants into drugs was really central. How does the case of Indian pennywort differ from the case of Rosie Periwinkle here, and and what do we need to understand about that case to understand the larger argument that you're making here in this chapter? Yeah, sure. So what's interesting to me is that I went to Madagascar thinking that perhaps um, Eli Lilly 
had stolen research of Malagasy scientists. I knew from my research in Ghana and also in South Africa by that point that there were highly trained um, individuals in these countries who had long been interested in bringing plants into the laboratory. And I was kind of curious if maybe something like that had happened in Madagascar. I know that um, some of the, the work at Lilly had depended on research in the Philippines and Jamaica. Was there also a, a Malagasy aspect to this story. And what I found is that at the same moment that Lily was working on the rosy periwinkle, there were a group of um, French and Malagasy researchers who were interested in pennywort, so Provence, um, Indian pennywort in um, Asiatic pennywort in Madagascar. And they had actually been able to extract chemicals from this that were then used in products at a French pharmaceutical um, company, La Roche, La Roche Posse now. And it's actually not necessarily a story about what's different. It's actually more a story about what's the same. And what we see is that in both cases, you're having this world historical moment where scientists are out for profit. They're out to say, I was the first to invent a new preparation from this um, plant, a new way of extracting a chemical. I am going to patent this in um, in European countries or in North America and Canada in the United States. And I'm going to use that as an exclusive claim to the right to manufacture products using this process. And I will profit from this. And either I will be the one to do this or I will license it to a pharmaceutical company and I'll get money off of it. And so I think there had been this sense that um, in Madagascar, there was this periwinkle. It was stolen by foreigners. Africans were not able to profit from their own plants and we should be giving them, um, you know, benefit sharing agreements so that people would have incentives to save their rainforest. But it's a much more complicated story in which you see that there are African actors who are able to set themselves up to some extent, particularly in Madagascar, as researchers. Um, Rati Mamang was a, a royal. He had um, a lot of access to education under colonial rule in Madagascar, was able to travel to France. He was a diplomat, He's very well situated to take advantage of some of these strategies that were permeating scientific research in the period. So it's actually not necessarily a question of what's different, but actually what's the same and how this model for identifying invention, identifying rights to um, pharmaceutical preparations is permeating scientific work in that period. Great. Thank you so much. So after moving, after exploring this first question of who was first um, that you laid out again in the introduction in this case study, and really complicating the question and opening up the question and um, asking us to rethink the nature of the question as well, we move to the next question with the next chapter, and that is, was traditional medicine local? Now, you use a case study that's particularly fascinating, and that brings us to a different context in this chapter, and that's a case study on grains of paradise. So for listeners who may not be familiar um, with this material, could you start us off um, in exploring this part of the book by explaining what are grains of paradise and why are they an important case study for you to uh, blend into this study? Sure. So in many ways, I see this book still as a book about Ghana and grains of paradise are um, a plant that grows in West Africa in tropical environments. It is a spicy pepper 
many of your listeners may have actually sampled this unwittingly. It's a spice that's used in Sam Adams' preparation for pale ale. So um, it's actually on their website and, and in some of their um, marketing literature that it was erroneously thought in the medieval period to be an aphrodisiac. Um, there are actually scientists who believe that there are extracts from Grains of Paradise which can be used to treat erectile dysfunction and um, a Canadian and um, uh, West African group of researchers actually filed patents um, at uh, the U.S. Patent Office with the idea that they had found a new preparation and way to cure um, impotence or erectile dysfunction in men. And um, this is a plant that I had seen a lot but not seen it. It's ubiquitous in West Africa. In fact, it's uh, a common ingredient in many herbal preparations. It's used in cooking. Women use it a lot in childhood medications. In some ways, my mom, who is a food um, researcher, she's a sociologist, Fran Osewasari, her website, betumi.com, B-E-T-U-M-I.com, has a lot about food and, and um, plants in Africa. She had told me she'd been going to culinary conferences in the United States, and Grains of Paradise had been discovered as this new cool spice, um, kind of the latest thing. And did I know anything about it? And all of a sudden, I was like, Grains of Paradise, okay, I've seen these peppers. I've probably eaten them, but I don't know anything about them. And what I found is that this, again, was not not a story just about Ghana. These are plants that have had a huge history of wide exchange across West Africa, um, up to the Middle East, up to Europe. It's possible that Chaucer mentions these in, in um, one of his stories. So really extending even you know outside of the early modern period into the middle, medieval period and earlier, really we don't know when um, the circulation of this pepper began. But it became this vehicle for me to think about who actually owns these medicinal plants. I can't say this is a plant that's specific to Ghana. This is a plant that came over on the slave ships. You know, it's something that is growing in Brazil. It's growing perhaps even in the Carolinas. Um, And is it a question of somebody was first to identify this as a treatment for erectile dysfunction to file related patents. Perhaps they can profit from this medication. Should we be giving money back to people in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the Republic of Congo, in Cameroon? Um, sort of what are the limits for how we can figure out who owns these plants and this knowledge? And this is actually a really, really important theme that's going to come up in a later chapter as well. And so this is a, for me, um, as somebody who, you know, at, at UBC um, right now at my university, there are lots and lots of discussions, and this has been you know, the case since I've been here, of how to understand and deal with um, and appropriate local knowledge of um, medicinal plants and, and drug plants, specifically with regard to First Nations communities here. Um, and it, it often comes down to these issues that you're raising here, sort of how to understand and how to identify a, a particular community or a 
same tradition as local um, and thus um, attribute ownership to knowledge um, in that way. And this was actually, uh, for me, this chapter and one of the later chapters that also explores this theme are really, really important and really informative for really helping us rethink what's actually an issue that has profound political and economic and global importance and well beyond um, the case study that you're introducing here. So thank you for that, because I think this is potentially a really transformative case, well beyond the case study that you're giving us here. And thank you. I would just add that for somebody who we haven't really talked about comparisons with um, medicine in any parts of Asia, but this chapter was extremely challenging because the written record for Africa um, is very sparse. There are many African languages that were not reduced to written script until the late 19th century. So how do you even know whether or not knowledge existed or was being shared? And so the use of these herbal recipes was really important for me to think about ways that we can map retrospectively networks of exchange using contemporary um, treatments that are in circulation today. And this issue that you just mentioned actually leads us, I think, really beautifully into the next chapter where you're looking at arrow poisons and specifically laying out a context in which um, through this case study we understand not just um, the particular arguments that you're making about the, you know, the larger set of questions we've been talking about, but also understand that the search for new drugs, as you put it, was a factor in the scramble for Africa in a way that hasn't necessarily been appreciated before. And as part of this, you bring us into the histories of arrow poisons and the development of a drug called strophanthin. Am I? Yeah, as far as I know. (laughs) Strophanthin. And I mentioned this um, in light of what you were just talking about, because one of the things that you're showing in this chapter, at least from the perspective of this reader, that is so important, is that in the transformation of plant to drug, there's a transformation of kinds of knowledge and media of knowledge, for example, from oral to a written and a kind of numerical knowledge um, in this context that's really profound and really important in terms of the history of epistemology. So this chapter explores the ways that colonial subjects on the north of the British Gold Coast actually resisted efforts to appropriate information, knowledge about plants, to ban arrow poisons, and to harvest strophanthus plants for pharma companies. And you take us into this really, really evocative and really fascinating case here. So can you talk, um, so one of the things that um, grounds this transformation that proceeds throughout the chapter is a transformation from a kind of early use of poisoned arrows through the appropriation of that knowledge um, and the um, conversion of poisoned arrow knowledge into pharmaceutical knowledge. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about the the use of poisoned arrows in this context? What do we need to understand about how poisoned arrows were used and how that knowledge was appropriated by, um, by colonial scientists in order to understand the larger implications of the case of this chapter. Yeah, sure. So this is one of the chapters I've been thinking about for a long time. It was in the dissertation, and it was situated in this idea of toxicity, right, that um, colonial authorities wanted to civilize African plant knowledge, that it was dangerous in the wrong hands, that there was a way in which new kinds of records and experiments, explanations, products, you know, they could find this new way to, to harness and control African knowledge. And what better way to do that than to transform 
poisoned arrows into chocolate-covered pills, basically, that could be used um, to treat heart ailments, heart smoker's heart, basically heart palpitations. It's very similar to um, the chemical that's in foxglove uh, digitalis. So this idea of transformation in the colonial period, I think, is really helpful because it's a way of thinking about herbal knowledge, traditional knowledge, and thinking about laboratory knowledge that continues up into the present. And for me, I see this as an interlock set of activities. It's not necessarily something that's going to shift hugely over time. Obviously, there are going to be new ways that we store records and new kinds of experiments that can be done. But the sense that there's this mass of knowledge that's been retained informally through family networks, through healer networks, it's maintained in people's um, mental databases. It's basically oral knowledge that's passed down within communities. It hasn't been written down. It hasn't been inscribed. And it's that process of writing down knowledge that's so critical to this divide between kind of the the scientists and and the healers. And this happens in the post-colonial period, as we'll see in the next chapter, that the record-keeping for Okuambafo is similar. It's this idea that we need to write down these plant recipes and see if there's new information that we can glean in the process of writing it down and then doing controlled experiments. But at the same time, I don't want to say that there is this 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 major schism necessarily because the whole act of bioprospecting and biopiracy even is this, this taking of information from people who actually have much greater understanding of the plants, perhaps. You know, these are people who in the, the Strophanthus case were making arrow poisons for generations. They knew exactly how much of the the plant to include with other ingredients to kill people. You know, that's a pretty dastardly experiment, but you know how to kill people with what you're doing, the toxicity level that's necessary. And so one or two European scientists, you know, based in Edinburgh, maybe one or two in Accra, they're fairly ignorant about this. I mean, they have to write a lot of things down because they know nothing. So I, I think you you see the tension that I'm trying to get at. It's it's a on one level it's an idea of civilization of civilizing African plant knowledge, but at the same time it shows the extent to which there's a dependency in the ways that traditional African medicine is really informing early pharmaceutical knowledge. So these poisoned arrows, as you're showing in this chapter, are used as a kind of technology of war, as a technology of resistance in West Africa in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and colonial officials are attempting, as you're describing it here, to take control to use it. Now, in that process, as you show late in this chapter, of taking control of that knowledge, what's happening is that colonial officials are actually not only obscuring the role of African plant experts in the construction of knowledge about this material, but also obscuring their access to um, the databases and gardens um, that uh, manifest and created this pharmaceutical knowledge from these early um, instantiations of the plant as a drug poison. So can you talk about that aspect of the story, like this obscuring, this prevention of access, and what is important about that element of the story in terms of the larger arguments that you're making in the book? Yeah, sure. So I think this book on one level is talking to some of the questions in um, law about 
who should have access to knowledge. Um, I'm not a legal scholar by any means, but I did a lot of reading of um, of articles that were written by by law professors who are trying to make sense of some of these questions around access to biological knowledge, genetic information, and this question of things being open and closed, gated and ungated. And so, again, I play with metaphors a lot. I mean, the the Grains of Paradise chapter is about sex, it's about medicine, but it's about other things too, right? So the poison arrows become this metaphor for how colonial authority was able to take plants physically out of African settings, place them in dried specimens, dried forms, um, in in liquid, encase them, entomb them in these collections, perhaps at the Kew Botanical Gardens, Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew, where I did a lot of, of research. And these are going to be collections that can only be seen often by men, often by um, English-speaking men or or. Uh, um, men who have access to go to, to England, um, botanists, um, chemists, pharmaceutical authorities at some point. And these are not necessarily collections that could then be accessed by um, individuals from different African countries where these plants have been harvested. So this question of, of gating and, and closing access to knowledge happens at a number of different levels in the process of bioprospecting. In the colonial instance here, we have um, the ways in which the, the plants that are being collected in African countries are being re- relocated physically to European um, herbaria and African specialists are not having access to these plants. And that's kind of the authority of the colonial project because um, while there is circulation of strophanthus, I mean, this is a plant, as with all the other plants, that's not just limited to Ghana, of course. I mean, it goes all the way down to um, the Zambezi River um, in, in South Africa, so or in Southern Africa. So you have a, a, this weird process by which the colonial gaze is able to amass information from many, many different sites and store it in databases away from um, colonial um, subjects. Great. Now, as we move from this to the next chapter and into the next material, we move from the colonial context into post-colonial Ghana. And in this context, African scientists were actually able to see credit, as you're showing in this chapter, for their role in the development of a new drug from the bitter roots, um, so we invoke the chapter here, the bitter roots of a plant called, and now I'm going to try to pronounce this, Cryptolepis sanguinolenta. I believe so. Okay. So this turns out to be, um, among other things, a malaria treatment. And here we really um, get introduced in this chapter to a figure that you've mentioned before. This is Oku Ampofo. Yes. Right. So can you um, then maybe take this opportunity, since he is such a central figure, not just in this chapter, but also in the genealogy of the project as a whole, um, to introduce him? What do we need to know about him and about the work that he was doing to understand um, the argument that you're going to be making um, in this chapter? Okay, sure. So Oku Ampofo, as I said at the beginning, was the individual with whom I spoke in 1997 that brought me into this project, the first bioprospector in a way that I got to know. Um, and he was a Ghanaian physician. He, he died in um, 1998, I believe, 1997, 1998, and was 
one of the first individuals to receive a Gold Coast Colonial Medical Scholarship to study to be a physician in Edinburgh. So before this point, before the Gold Coast started to do state sponsorship of medical education, it was only extremely wealthy families um, that were able to send their children to go abroad to study medicine at medical colleges in Europe. Otherwise, um, there was training for medical assistants in West Africa, um, in Nigeria. There was training for for um, kind of midwives, people to do maternal care, often young women. But to become a physician and to become a colonial medical officer was very difficult. And as it turned out, Okwampofo, while he did come from a well-to-do family, he actually wasn't given a job um, in the colonial medical establishment. Even those who were trained through the colonial system found it very challenging to beat out white colleagues, um, British trained, British, you know, white British young men who were in the country to become um, colonial medical officers. And so he sets up a private practice in the 1930s and 40s where he is going to be treating people in the rural areas. And that's a big distinction between the white physicians who were coming in through the colonial apparatus at this period. They tended to want to be in urban areas. Um, it would be a hardship post to be in a very rural setting. There are, of course, missionary doctors who sometimes were in rural areas, but by and large, um, they were not necessarily being cited in these rural areas. Oku Ampafo is important because he is very knowledgeable about the kinds of ailments that everyday people are experiencing, and in particular, malaria. For a very long time, malaria was seen from the Br- British colonial perspective as something that was affecting whites. This was a danger. Um, you might have heard of, of um, the unbelievably high death tolls of this um, disease that spread by malaria, uh, mosquito bites. It wasn't known until the early 20th century that it was spread by mosquito bites. Um, and so it's kind of this mysterious disease that is emanating out of the swamps of Africa. And, you know, you look at lists of governors, they would come to West Africa and die within three months and they'd bring in a new governor and the soldiers are all dying. But actually, Africans, um, while they had different kinds of acquired resistance and genetic resistance to uh, malaria, are by and far largely the, the main victims of the disease in the colonial period. Someone like Oku Ampafo brings this to light, and he's looking for different ways to treat malaria. Um, there's also this question of drug resistance to some of the pharmaceutical therapies that come into play. And Ampafo, in close conversation with healers, is able to identify a herbal remedy for malaria that's widely being used in Ghana and other parts of West Africa that seems to actually kill malaria parasites. So it's it's um, a kind of story where sometimes people read my material and are thinking, huh, maybe we should look at some of these expired patents again. And, you know, that's a problem. I'm a historian. I'm divulging all of this information, making it public as opposed to um, trying to get grainsofparadise.com. Actually, the people who run grainsofparadise.com have been in touch with me um, and people interested in, in revisiting this, this treatment for malaria um, have also been in touch. So he basically didn't have the money necessarily to bring it to fruition in his lifetime, but they did get uh, patents from the U.S. Patent Office. 
Now, there are a couple of really interesting things that are happening in this chapter. I'll just mention one of them and then um, ask you to talk about the other. Uh, one of the things that you um, emphasize in this chapter is that he did construct this personal archive and that his work and his materials were actually appropriated by and merged with a nationalist project to document a Ghanaian plant medicine after independence from Britain in 1957. And so you talk about the construction of a national database of plants. Again, this kind of creation of a database is a, a tr really a transformation ontologically of what it is that we're talking about when we talk about plant materials being transformed into drugs and here being transformed into a kind of national, um, national entity, a national commodity. You also, though, talk about his research on alkaloids along with another scientist, Albert Tacky, Albert Nee Tacky. Yes. And you, and this is really interesting because you talk here about um, the fact that this this becomes not just an issue of you know the the kind of bio the Western biomedical scientists versus the Ghanaian scientists. You talk here about another kind of obscuring, and this is the obscuring of the role of traditional plant experts in the process of transforming a plant into drug by Ghanaian scientists. And so, can you talk about that part of the story because this introduces another really important community that we have haven't talked about very much in our conversation, but that's really central to um, the work that's being done in this book. Yeah, sure. So um, the thank you so much for asking these great questions, Carl. I'm like just so excited to be discussing this with someone who actually understands what I'm trying to say in every chapter. It's like, wow, you're inside of my head. Because you're so clear. Um, it's well, so clear. yeah, but you know, I think it's just that we're trained to think about some of these issues. And so you get you get what I'm trying to say, even when I'm not really saying it completely. Um, the tensions between Ghanaian scientists were significant. And actually, the timing for when I did this research was critical. Oku Ampafo, I met in 1997. He dies several months later. And there's a huge fight for his research materials and the research center that he set up. There has already been tension between um, Ghanaian scientists who feel like he might have different drugs that they also want to have a part in getting financial rewards from. There are also North Americans who are coming on the scene, long-term friends of his who want access to the information. That's the side of bioprospecting or even African bioprospecting that many of my readers are able to kind of grapple with. Okay, so there are going to be some white Americans who are going to come in there and try and steal this stuff. But the tensions between the Ghanaian scientists are no joke. Partly, I think it's because after independence, there was such a small group of people who, number one, had had tertiary education first at universities abroad and then are building the universities in Ghana. And, and second, the economics of survival in Ghana, it's nothing to sneeze at what was going on from the 1970s and 1980s. We have numerous coup d'etats. Um, people are literally being killed in leadership positions. It is a very tense environment in which to survive as an intellectual and as a thinker. It's extremely politicized. It's important whose side you're on at different points. And so to kind of breeze through that and just survive and stay in the country, very few people are able to do it. Oku Ampafo is one of the few who actually stays in Ghana through the 1980s. Albert Nitaki, who sets up the Center for Scientific Research into Plant Medicine with him, he um, actually weathers some of the, the difficult periods in Nigeria. So you've got these Ghanaian scientists who are just 
grabbing it every way they can to show that they are legitimately um, internationally recognized, that they should be in leadership positions in Ghana, and what's sacrificed along the way are these traditional healers from whom they get a lot of their information. And it w- took a great deal to get the names even of some of the people who Oku Ampofo may have gotten the the recipes for cryptolepsis from. Um, there were specific individuals that he worked with over the years and a spe- specific individual in particular who he credits with giving him the cryptolepsis recipe. But these are not people who are going to show up on this scientific papers or on this, this, this cryptoleptine patent um, that Tacky is going to file with uh, some American researchers in the United States. And their names get jettisoned and pushed away and hidden in very similar ways to what was happening in the colonial period when you had colonial medical authorities taking, for example, the, the poison arrow knowledge and not crediting um, the, the experts who knew how to make the poison arrows. Thank you so much, Havana. And this actually, um, I think, also really nicely leads us into the next chapter. This is a chapter on Hudia. And it looks, you open up um, with, or by taking us into a pharmacy, um, in a local pharmacy in Berkeley, and then ask us, um, how does Hudia migrate from South Africa and Namibian and Botswana and Kalahari to your neighborhood pharmacy? What's the process of getting there? Now, not only is this a really interesting case study, just inherently, it's a really interesting material, but this case study, as is the case in every single one of the chapters, is used here really, really brilliantly to bring us into a much larger question question with much larger stakes than just in this case, although it also does very, um, in a very focused way, emerge from this case. And this is, what defines a community? So in the process of trying to, as, as um, happens here, and I'll ask you this in a, about this in a moment, of trying to um, give a claim, give a kind of ownership to a local community for knowledge that is ultimately transformed into pharmaceutical knowledge what needs to happen is that we need to understand how to define that community. And the case study here really problematizes that in a really beautiful way. So the case study focuses on the first bioprospectors in South Africa, and this is the Bushmen or San who live in the Kalahari. So can you talk um, for us as a way to bring us into this case study about these Bushmen, these San? Um, how are they bioprospectors, and in what ways do they constitute or not a community in this larger history of Hudia and its transformations? Okay, sure. So I'll do my best to answer that. It's a broad set of questions. But yeah, but I mean, that's that's the heart of the, the matter. Hudia has been coming up um, as a positive contrast to the Lily periwinkle debacle. So with Lily, you see a situation where um, Rosie periwinkle becomes this cure for leukemia and there's no kickbacks. And as we show in that chapter, it's probably because who are you going to kick back to? Um, Hudia was in my mind, going into this, an ideal situation. You have a plant with a fairly limited geographic domain. I put the plants in the chapters kind of loosely according to their geographic distribution. So Hudia has the the smallest range, and this is something that grows actually not in the Kalahari Desert, but actually in the Great Karoo um, along the coastal areas of southern Africa. Essentially, you could say these are the original homelands of the Bushmen or the San um, 
populations in Southern Africa. So you can kind of map on ownership claims. These are uh, communities that have thought to settle first in Southern Africa, really a first peoples group. Um, they are culturally and, and, and physically distinctive in terms of, of their identification within South African history. So it's much more of an obvious first peoples benefit sharing narrative, much more similar to what you're going to see even in North America. Um, you mentioned some of the, the cases that are going to be happening with First Nations in, in Canada. You have a large settlement of, of Dutch, of British, of white inhabitants coming into an area. And, and so there are these kind of racial distinctions that we've all come to accept more or less in terms of, of what constitutes difference between humans. What I saw in South Africa and I continue to kind of grapple with is that the location of these plants and the location of the people in the 20th century does not line up. So the identification of the Bushmen and the San with the Kalahari Desert is in part due to migration of a, a group of people who are oppressed, basically almost decimated in terms of extermination, um, cultural annihilation, exposure to disease, and retreat into the Kalahari Desert. For 40 or 50 years, extensive documentation of the plants that they use is done by researchers in South Africa, researchers in the United States, very limited mention of Hudia. So in my mind, you'd think that, okay, here you've got the sun, they're surviving on Hudia, they're using it in the Kalahari Desert. When a patent comes out of this, when a new pharmaceutical preparation comes out of it, obviously the sun should get the money. And that's basically what's happened in terms of the legal disputes. But I think that's more kind of a gesture towards making sense of apartheid wrongs than necessarily what happened. I mean, and this is really risky to say that the San don't own Hudia. It's like the nail in the coffin of benefit sharing and, and any hope in this project. But I think if we, if we fixate on this being a first peoples who have first rights to this plant, it doesn't really look at the full constellation of who's using this plant. Part of why we know about this plant today is because Dutch settlers were actually eating it and pickling it and using it and, and, and selling Hudia as a cactus overseas and sending it to California. So it's a messy, messy process. And there are a lot of people involved. It's awesome. Thank you. And I highly recommend, well, I recommend all the chapters for listeners, but it's a really, really, um, it really gets at the heart of some very, very contemporary debates around these issues. And I think can really inform um, not just the way we think about it historically, but the way we think about it in terms of policy. And that moves us to the conclusion. So in the conclusion, you identify, you lay out, and you explain an approach for, as you put it here, sustaining plants, pharmaceutical drugs, and peoples within relationships of equity. And you call this approach bioprosperity. Now, I really love this about the book because you're offering some concrete steps and sort of ways for us to move forward and really um, put some of these ideas and these critical perspectives that you're offering us in the book into action. A couple of steps um, in particular stand out. And I just want to kind of move us through the conclusion by asking you to talk about two of these steps. One of these steps that you suggest is that we rethink patents and priority. 
So can you talk a little bit about what you mean there? How does how might we rethink patents and priority to serve this larger goal of bioprosperity? Sure. So I wrote this book with people like Oku Ampafo in mind, and not just Oku Ampafo, probably my father and his friends and the scientists that I grew up knowing in both Pennsylvania and in Ghana. And they wonder if they don't patent these chemicals, these, you know, the the process for extracting chemicals from these plants, who will? The idea of bioprosperity for me is really about putting African actors at the center of these debates and doing it through a historical lens. So accepting that there is going to be a race for priority. It's going on. There's nothing you can do about it. People are looking for patents. Um, it's not just North Americans who are doing the patenting. Indian scientists are doing patenting. Chinese scientists are doing patenting. So I have kind of this dialectical relationship with patents. On one hand, I think that this idea that somebody is the first to identify that a plant is bioactive doesn't make sense because there are many people making multiple discoveries at the same time. On the other hand, I am sympathetic to the statements of the scientists that I know and that I've worked with that they feel they have a right to pursue um, the, the priority battles that you know, this patent proliferation that's happening, they feel that they have a right to participate in that. So as a historian, I would come off as not someone who necessarily can rethink patenting top to bottom, but as someone who's saying, look, I don't think patents work. But at the same time, who am I to say that Africans shouldn't go and try and access them? And I think that that's a bit controversial because often, you know, the victors make the rules. So right now, Maybe people in the United States or Canada are saying, let's throw away, let's jettison patents, particularly around plants. Um, but Africans are, are very invested in this process. You know, scientists at, at CSR in South Africa, they are um, tasked with bringing in income to fund their research facilities through patenting. And so by saying they're not supposed to patent anymore, we are saying in a way that the frameworks that come down from North America or Europe are going to be used to dictate how people try and sustain knowledge going forward. You also mentioned, and this is the last thing I'll ask you before we, um, we wrap up and conclude, that we might rethink claims to local knowledge. And this comes from um, the, you know, the book-long critical perspective on what it means to talk about locality and globality in the historiography and ethnography that you're talking about. So could you talk a little bit about that? What might it look like concretely to rethink claims to local knowledge in this context? I think this is really critical. And for me... The questions that I address in the book really come out of the conversations I've done in the oral history research and the conversations I've had with different protagonists in these stories, um, whether they're working on these plants per se or some of the, the just general bioprospecting that's happening. So let's look at what rethinking locality means for three different sets of people and kind of stereotyping it a bit for, for the purposes of this conversation. I think it's so important to acknowledge that these plants are crossing boundaries and that the ways in which people have been using them historically have been crossing boundaries. It's not necessarily limited to particular ethnic groups or to nations. This is a way that 
could impact the claims of traditional healers and something that I'm exploring in, in my next project on the history of traditional healers in Ghana. Um, traditional healers like African scientists are telling me, well, I was the first to introduce this tonic, alafia bitters, for example, in West Africa. My family owns this recipe. Yes and no. I mean, if you look at Grains of Paradise, you see a plant that is used from Bahia to, you know, Morocco, um, and often in fairly similar ways. And unfortunately, humans have been in conversation for a long time, and certain recipes stick, and they're shared, and they become this this cultural product that can't be reduced to one ethnic group. So I look a little bit at the question of geographic indications, ways in which you can brand um, remedies as, as kind of a local brew, something that can be managed um, through a local association of healers. This is actually some laws have been put in place along these lines for looking at uh, artistic cultural property in, in Ghana, for example. If you think about plants not being local and herbal knowledge not being local, this also has a big impact on the rhetoric of African scientists. There are scientists in Kenya, scientists in South Africa, scientists in Cameroon who are all focused on trying to get the next, you know, leukemia treatment, Oncovin Velbin. They want to be like Eli Lilly the same way the Malagasy scientists wanted to. And I think that there's a lot of folly in the rhetoric, and that's part of why I wrote this book, because these plants don't belong to each of these countries. I mean, I just, I can't understand how you would think that there's this plant that's only in Kenya. I mean, there are some plants with very limited domain, but often the ones that are bioactive are the weeds. They're the ones that are, you know, sides of roads and forests. They have chemicals because they're able to survive in harsh environments. Um, so I think that the the kind of database management, the sharing of knowledge, the sharing of research programs has to be more consorted in African countries. It can't just be Ghana doing it alone. Um, even the, the publication of these pharmacopias are often nation-based, and I kind of wonder what the purpose of that is if there's so much replication across these national borders. And then third, in terms of policy, both at the national level and internationally, um, there's a lot of gating of this knowledge that's happening from the perspective of um, countries that are less well off. So countries like Ghana, for example, South Africa, um, while it is a rising nation, there's still the sense that plants that are in South Africa um, Roibus, Hudia, we need to make sure that we control them and that we are the only ones who can um, profit from them or manage any profiting that's happening. Again, this is untenable. These plants are crossing, you know, within the South, Southern African subregion. It's very difficult to say that South Africa owns Hudia and that that comes out in my book. And also in terms of international policy, with some of the benefit sharing structures, um, we need much more robust ways of thinking about how plant knowledge is going to be shared and controlled across countries. It's not going to necessarily work to gate it within specific countries. So perhaps more questions than answers, but that's, you know, if we knew all the answers, people like me would be out of business. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Avina, I think that's probably a, a, a good place to um, bring this to a close. There is a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk, to talk about. It's extraordinarily rich, both in terms of its history and its ethnography, and we really just scratched the surface. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who didn't uh, or who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, sure. I think that from the perspective of African history, something that students are asking me is kind of, is it possible to write histories of more than one country at the same time, which is kind of what I tried to do here. And I think I've succeeded in some places and, and definitely failed in others. It is much easier to do this kind of research than when I started. When I started I had to lie and wait outside people's offices for weeks. Nobody had cell phones. It was just so hard to even connect up with individuals. Um, and, you know, archival research, you had to basically just be in one place writing down information out of the, the record. It's much easier to digitize these records now. It's much easier to get in touch with people overseas, you know, if you're not living in a country where you're doing research either through email or online. Um, I think that, that that's opening up a lot of possibilities in terms of the kind of research that people can do. And so I just encourage those of you who are early on and probably if you actually get to the end of this conversation, you are totally fascinated with doing research and are, are definitely in the field um, to explore some of these technologies that are out there to do comparative work to work in more than one country because I think it, it throws up a lot of interesting data. Um, even if you do a monograph that's on one specific locale, it's just so easy at this point to get some comparative material that it might be helpful rather than, you know, write an entire dissertation on toxicity and think that that's going to be the story for the whole world. Imagine if I had been able to Google all of these plants when I started, which I wasn't able to, um, and get sort of the level of detail um, that's available now. I think that that's a really exciting new wave in terms of how we can do scholarship. So, Abena, now that the book is out, and congratulations again, it's an absolutely inspiring and also fabulous book. What's next for you? You've mentioned um, briefly just a few minutes ago a project on the history of traditional healers in Ghana. Is that mostly what you're focusing on? And if so or if not, can you talk a little bit about um, what's currently inspiring you? Yeah, sure. So I continue to be interested in Ghana, even though it's kind of a love-hate situation because I have so much family there and it's so hard to just get work done and not spend time going to birthday parties and family events. Um, but I think, you know, I've had to accept that even though I, I went to the ends of the earth and went to Madagascar even, that I am more comfortable in Ghana and that's some place that I want to that continues to inspire me, and I continue to want to do research there. Um, so there are two things I'm looking at. One is a continuation of this research on healing traditional medicine in Ghana. Um, I've been studying the roles of different traditional healing professions in Ghana for a long time, starting with my earliest research on maternal mortality. And so I'm working on a, a project that brings together some of these strains to understand the history of different traditional healing professionals um, over the last century. That's kind of just an ongoing project that I should have probably finished before I went off on this tangent on bioprospecting. And then I continue to also be interested very much in the roles of African scientists, Ghanaian scientists, and Albert Nitaki's archives brought me 
into some of the research of the medical isotope laboratories in Ghana. So using um, radiation in chemotherapy um, and in an experimentation and Ghana's quest to join the International Atomic Energy Agency and to get a nuclear research reactor. So um, a project that is probably more visible and definitely sounds more sexy than traditional healers in Ghana is my research on um, nuclear rights in, in Ghana and particularly a part of Accra that's called Atomic Junction where there is a nuclear reactor sited. So I've done a short film about that and I'm writing a book about um, Ghana's basic quest to be part of um, the atomic age. Well, best of luck with that work, Avana. I'll look forward to talking with you about those books as well. And in the meantime, congratulations and thank you again. Oh, thank you, Carla. This has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I mean that honestly. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.